Bible 2, go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, if you're new or newer to the Bible, this is the easy one. You open to the first book of the Bible, go to the fourth chapter, that's where we'll be tonight, Genesis chapter 4. Uh, as you turn there, uh, I want to remind you of um, want to remind you of the verse that we're going to be looking at tonight um, and the teaching series that we're beginning. Uh, and so we'll be jumping into this teaching series. And this teaching series we have titled uh, that we would hate what is evil and cling to what is good. This comes out of, of course, this memory scripture that we just talked about. Uh, that is Romans 12, chapter 9. I've shortened it here to just hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so we're really going to spend four weeks here kind of reflecting and thinking about this notion of what it means to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And here's what I want to say just from the very top, um, and this will just take us from zero to 60 real quick. Um, some of you have no room for hate in your faith, and it's damaging you. You have no room for hate. You've been convinced somehow that Christianity is all about love and niceness and feelings of good all the time and always being nice and lovely, that you actually have no room for hate, and it is damaging your faith. So here's what I want us to know. In order to be faithful to Jesus, we got to hate some things. And what the scriptures say is we got to hate what is evil. So I don't know about you, but I hate evil in this world. I hate the fact that we live in a violent, cruel, vicious culture. I hate the fact that there is racism and oppression and sexism in this world. I hate the fact that there are people who are crushed by abusive people in this world. I hate that there are women and children who are crushed and abused by abusive men. I hate pornography. I hate how it binds people, even people in this room, and how it destroys lives. I hate the evil in this world. And for some of us, the reason we are not thriving in our faith is because we have not actually learned to hate what God hates. Because God does hate the wickedness and the evil that destroys things in this world. So again, I said that was zero to 60 real quick. We're going fast on this because here's what I want us to see. Like this command to hate what is evil and cling to what is good is really this two-part thing. And if all you're ever going to do is cling to what is good, but have no revulsion toward what is evil in this world, your faith will never thrive in the way it needs to. You should see wickedness and evil in this world. And there should be a part of you that sees a war ravaging people in Ukraine right now and go, I hate that. It's not just as you disapprove. It's not just you post a Ukrainian flag. It's that your soul actually hates what's evil in this world. And we're going to spend four weeks kind of thinking about what it means to hate what is evil, and then also what it means to cling to what is good. And so we've got to have one or the other, right? So, so many of you, I think in our culture, in our moment, certainly in our generation, um, the hate what is evil thing maybe comes a little harder. But because we've just been taught, like, just be nice and polite and good at all times. But you've also got to be the type of person who loves what's good, right? Because if you're just the person shaking your fist at what's evil, you're actually useless in this world. You've got to cling to what is good. And so we're going to talk about both of those things. We're going to talk about good and bad and right and wrong and evil and holiness. We're going to talk about all of these things throughout the course of this series. But tonight we're going to start in Genesis chapter 4. And to get us set up for this, I want us to think about um, the different pictures that the Bible, and I'll really say the New Testament, gives us when it comes to sin and God's salvation. When it comes to evil and when it comes to good, when it comes to our relationship with God and how wickedness has come into this world, and yet God has rescued us. And so I want to give you six images tonight, six images that come out of the New Testament that shape the way we think about God, the way we think about evil, the way we think about right and wrong, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, these images will pop into your mind and you'll immediately recognize them. Here's the first image most of us think about when it comes to good, evil, right, and wrong. It's this one right here. It's the image of a courtroom. It's the image of a heavenly courtroom. And here's what most of us, this is the most popular vision or picture that people have of what it means to walk in sin or walk in holiness. We have violated God's law. We are on the stand. We are, we are the person who has been accused of something wrong. And we understand that sin is us violating God's law. And salvation is Jesus taking our spot in the courtroom, taking that guilty verdict upon himself. 
And this is this beautiful, precious image in the New Testament of justification by faith, where Jesus Christ declares us right before God the judge and God the Father. But this is only one of the images in the New Testament. The image of a courtroom is a beautiful and a special image, but it's not the only image in the New Testament. Like, let me show you another one here. This image right here is the empire of Japan um, surrendering at the end of World War II. This is the surrender ceremony. You can see all the pomp and circumstance around it, but it is a surrender. And here's what you need to know about sin in the New Testament. There is some talk of sin in the New Testament as our rebellion against God that we have rebelled against the king, we have set up war against him, we waged war against God, and that salvation, turning to what is good, clinging to what is right, is when Jesus calls a peace treaty between us and God. This is one of the beautiful images of God in the New Testament. It's the image of the peace table. It's the image of two nations at war, enmity with one another, finally coming to peace. Here's another image in the New Testament. It's the image of a bill being paid. It gets us into the area of commerce. It's that Jesus ransomed you. He redeemed you. He bought you with a price, with the price of his own blood. That we have racked up a debt against God and that debt needs to be paid. You cannot pay that debt, but Jesus pays that debt. This is one of the images of the New Testament that you owed God something. You owed a debt you could never pay. So Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. Here's another image in the New Testament. It's the image of the family coming back together. It's the image of reconciliation. It's the image of the wayward child who comes back to the father and the father absorbs all of the hurt and all of the wrong and instead chooses to wrap his arms around his wayward son. This is one of the pictures of God, one of the pictures of evil and good and right and wrong in the New Testament. Next to last, there's an image of a, of a lamb being slaughtered on the altar. This brings us to the word atonement or propitiation in the New Testament. The idea is that God needs blood, that that blood sacrifice is actually what atones for the sins of God's people. But instead of punishing you, there is a sacrifice who is put on the altar and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice put on the ultimate altar of the cross who redeems us for our sin. But then here's the final image I wanna show you in just a second. And this final image is I believe an image that is neglected in this room and neglected in most of Western Christianity. And I think tonight's story is going to help us see this image clearly. I want to show you the final image of sin and salvation in the New Testament, and that brings us to a doctor's office. It brings us to health. It brings us to what we do in a doctor's office when you come in sick and you see healing from that disease. Let me put it to you this way tonight as we think about sin. I'll say it this way, that sin is a virus that makes us sick. Sin is a virus that makes us sick. Now, every eye in the room on me right now. I don't want to be unclear here. I am using sin and virus and sick as a metaphor here, okay? This is not, if you're sick, it's because you sinned. It's not, if you have a chronic health condition, it's because you sinned or your parents sinned. The New Testament is abundantly clear that our sin is not just the immediate connection to our sickness. Sometimes our sin makes us sick. Sometimes through sinful decisions over the course of your life, you have a sickness or an illness. And sometimes you have a sickness or an illness that is not connected to your sin, but is rather given to you so that God might glory through you. All right, so I don't want anyone to be confused here. This is an image, it is a metaphor. The idea that sin is a virus that makes us sick suggests that sin is something that enters into us, twists us up, and destroys our life. And that's what I want you to know tonight. Like, I want us to ponder the fact that sin is a virus that makes us sick, but then I can just declare this over someone tonight, that Jesus is the great physician who makes us whole. That's the story of Jesus. And so again, there's an image of a courtroom or of a bill being paid or of a war being over. And all of those are true New Testament images. But tonight, here's what I want you to see in the story we're about to read. That sin is this virus, this thing that gets inside of us, and it makes us sick, and it twists us up, and it has impact on our life and on the lives of the people around us. 
But Jesus is the one who makes us whole. Let's see this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Again, if you have your Bible, if not, it'll be up here on the screen. Here's how it begins. It says, Adam made love to his wife, Eve, which is always a great way to start a story, but here's where we are. The old versions would say he knew his wife, Eve, and it's like, no, you know them in a biblical sense. We won't linger on that. Anyway, sorry. Uh, sorry, she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to her brother, Abel. So again, if you're new or newer to the Bible or to church, you have Adam and Eve, the first human beings. They're put in a garden. Everything's perfect. God goes, there's one rule. Don't break it. There's an apple or a fruit over there. Just don't eat from that fruit. Don't eat from that tree. And of course, human beings do the one thing they are not supposed to do. They eat from the tree um, and, and it ends up destroying them. I saw an Instagram account. I'm getting off track. Sorry, but I saw this Instagram account this week that said Adam and Eve were tempted by the fruit. Imagine if it was a jalapeno popper. Um, I was like, yeah, man. Like, but like, that's the story, right? There's one rule you're not supposed to do. And human beings are like, we know better than you, God, which is actually at the core of what it means to sin is to go, thank you, God. You're so smart, but I actually know better than you. That's what Adam and Eve do. They enter sin into the world. Sin is now ravaging the world. And yet, by God's grace, the human race continues. Isn't it wild that God didn't just like end Adam and Eve and start over? Isn't it wild that God doesn't just end you and start over? Like God allows you to continue in this world even in the midst of your sin? That's the story here. So like sin enters the picture, but God's grace continues in these two children. It says this, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So Cain works the soil. He's like a gardener and he grows up some fruit and he brings this offering before the Lord. But Cain is out in the, or, or, I'm sorry, Abel keeps the flocks and he's out in the field and he ends up killing one of his animals and bringing the fat portions as an offering. And then here's what it says. It says, the Lord looked with favor upon Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But like, in other words, why are you so mad? Why are you so upset? There was a rule I gave to you. I instructed you on how to do this. And yet if you don't do it right, why would you be upset about that? But it says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Like there's only four human beings alive and a fourth of the population of the earth just gets wiped out. Like in this moment, Cain kills Abel. But like you gotta just like, like it's easy for us to read the story. I'm like, all right, dad. Like, no, this is wild. This is the first time anyone's ever thought to end anyone's life. It's the first time they've ever thought to do violence to one another. And that's what happens in the story. And then in verse nine, it says, then the Lord came to Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? I, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said to him, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground and you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, no, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put the mark of Cain, put, put on, the mark, on Cain a mark so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here's the story. 
And in some ways, it's this like cryptic, bizarre, really short story, right? This isn't a profoundly long story. Uh, and yet packed into this is just all these things we need to consider tonight when we think about what it means to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Packed into this story is this deep image and this deep metaphor uh, of what goes on in the world when sin starts to play itself out. I'll say it this way tonight, that the Cain and Abel story is the story of what happens when sin's infection goes unchecked. Like sin has entered into the world, and in some way for Cain, there's been no check on it. There's been no uh, remedy for it. It's running its natural course. And I want us to see tonight what happens when sin runs unchecked in Cain's life. And then really the key is this. I want you to understand what happens when sin goes unchecked in your life. I want us to understand what sin is. I want you to understand what the scriptures talk about. Uh, I want to give five different observations from this story of what happens when sin goes unchecked. Here's the first one, that when sin infects, when worship fades. Sin infects when worship fades. You'll see in verse four, it says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, Now, here's what I'm convinced of. I think sometime in the intervening verses between Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, there was some instruction from the Lord that they were supposed to bring an offering. It doesn't say that in the text, but the fact that they're bringing these offerings means at some point, God said, you need to bring me an offering. Now, here's what we see all throughout the scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, there's this clarity that every time someone sins, that their death is demanded, that blood is demanded from the person who sins, that it's not enough to just say, I'm sorry, God, that to sin is to rebel against the God of heaven. It is to be an enmity at war with the God of heaven. And in every society that has ever existed, including our own, the only penalty for treason is death. And here's what happens. God puts in place all the way from Cain and Evil, all the way from Adam and Eve, this system by which offerings can be made, by which God's wrath can be put on the offering rather than on the person. And so somewhere in the intervening years, God instructs Cain and Abel to bring these offerings together. But then I want you to remember this, that Cain and Abel both bring an offering, but they bring a different kind of offering. Abel is going to bring the offering of blood of the fattened portion of his lambs. And Cain is going to bring an offering with no blood. Cain is going to bring an offering of fruits and of vegetables. In other words, Abel is going to worship God in the way God told him to worship. And Cain thinks he knows better. Cain thinks he's got this on his own. Like, I want us to understand, like, why does God accept one offering but not accept the other? And I think the answer is this, that Abel is worshiping in the way that God told him to worship, and Cain thinks he can do it any way he wants. And here's what I want us to remember. Every time we walk in sin in our lives, it's us saying, God, that's a nice idea, but I know better. If you're taking notes tonight, write those down. I know better. That's sin. Sin is us looking at God and saying, I know you created me. I know you're the God who creates all things, but I know better. And anytime I think I know better, I am making myself God. I am worshiping myself. I am saying that I am the highest authority. I am the highest thing. And I'm not orienting my life right toward God. I want us to remember this, that sin is always a worship issue. Sin is always about who's in charge Who gets to call the shots? Who is the ultimate in my world? And we live in a time and we live in a culture and you are certainly part of a generation that says no one gets to tell me who I am. No one gets to tell me how to live. No one gets to tell me what this world is all about. I create my own reality. I create my own profile. I upload my own photos. I shape my image. No one else gets to tell me what that is. And here's what the Bible says. You are dead wrong. 
God gets to tell you who you are. God gets to set the rules. God gets to tell you how to live. And Cain and Abel is this initial example of what happens when we decide that we're going to do things on our own. We're going to operate in the way we want to operate. Sin always infects when worship fades. Like the opposite of sin, of me not walking in sin, is me walking in proper relationship with God. And another name for that is worship. We want to be people who walk in worship. Here's the second observation I want to make tonight, number two. It's this, that sin's infection makes you unhappy. That sin's infection makes you unhappy. You'll see here again in verse four or five and six, it says, Cain was angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? Uh, like in other words, God looks down at Cain and recognizes that Cain is sad. Not just that Cain is like, not just that Cain didn't succeed. Not just that Cain wasn't doing something right. But God looks down and sees the emotional state of Cain in reaction to his sin, in reaction to his way of not worshiping properly the way that God has for him. And I'll just make two observations on this. First is this: um, you'll notice I use the word happy up here. That sin's infection makes you unhappy. And I say this from time to time, and someone's always mad at me because you've been taught the opposite. But I need you to know that the Bible does not make a hard distinction between joy and happiness. It just doesn't. Like all throughout the scriptures, joy, happiness, delight, all of these things are blended together. And so when I say sin makes you unhappy, I'm not just saying some frivolous thing. I am saying it makes you deeply, completely robbed of the joy and happiness and delight and fulfillment that God has for you. That's what happens. Sin robs from you. It takes from you. It does not give to you. It only takes away from you. Sin makes you profoundly unhappy. And then the second thing is this. I want to talk to someone in this room who's going, you know what, Brian? You don't know what you're talking about because you're a pastor. You don't know about real life out there. I sin all the time and it makes me profoundly happy because I can't tell you how many people think their sin makes them happy. And here's what I've observed about sin. Sin makes you happy for a moment but then turns your stomach for the long term. It's like this. Um, one of the big mistakes I make from time to time in my life, and I'll just admit that I make this mistake, and maybe someone else would have the courage to admit that you make this mistake as well. From time to time, I get up early in the morning and don't have time to prepare breakfast. And I'm either traveling or I'm going somewhere. I'm trying to get on the road. And right next to my house, there is a McDonald's, right? That is open nice and early. Okay, you know where I'm going with this, right? So I roll through McDonald's. And then here's what I've just discovered over the years. One of the most delicious things on McDonald's breakfast menu is the McGriddle. Amen, anyone? Oh, like the scientists at McDonald's figured out how to insert syrup into the muffin, right? And it's there and you just eat, it's so good. And like I get a McGriddle and I'm just like, oh, this is so outstanding. And I always think that for about 15 minutes after. And then I go, I've made a terrible mistake. Like this is the wrongest thing I've ever done, Lord. I'll never do it again. I repent of the McGriddle. I'm so sorry. Please just protect my stomach and my digestion today, right? This is what sin is, right? Sin always feels good in the moment. Listen, you going and hooking up with someone who is not your wife feels good in the moment. Over the long haul, you live that way, you will be miserable. Listen, you living in kind of greed where you hold on to your money and you never give anyone everything. You've never given to the poor. You've never given to the church. All your money is just yours and God gets no claim on it. Yeah, you can buy some cool shoes, but it'll make you miserable in the long run. You walking in envy, constantly being jealous of people. It actually feels good in the moment because when you're jealous of someone, you can actually look down on them a little bit. And that emotion is powerful, but a jealous person in the end becomes twisted up. So here's what sin does. Sin robs from you your happiness. It takes from you over the long haul. The people I know who are walking in habitual sin and have no interest in repenting, no interest in turning, they're not at war with their sin, they've made peace with their sin, those people are never happy over the long haul. 
Over the long haul, those are people who get twisted up in this world into something they never thought they'd get into. And quite frankly, those are the people who get into things that you have never imagined doing. The, the kinds of perversions, the kinds of things in this world that they just get twisted up into that you can't even imagine being the type of person. Here's what happens. Like sin always sucks you in. Sin always wants more from you. Sin never gives to you. It always takes. It's like you're drinking salt water. Like surely this will quench my thirst. It only makes things worse over the long haul. Like I want you to understand sin only makes things worse. It's like this the other night. Um, I was in the hot tub with my older two kids, my, my four-year-old Grace and my two-year-old Noah. Now Grace is an angel. She's a first child. She would never do anything wrong and never has, okay? She's amazing. She's perfect. But my son Noah, totally different story, okay? Um, I, th- this little boy, he's in the hot tub. And their favorite thing to do in the hot tub is just like take these cups and like pour water in and out of the cups and they kind of do this. But then the second favorite thing he has in the hot tub is to take that cup, look me in the eye, pull the cup up to his mouth and begin drinking it. And I'm like, no, son, don't do that. And he looks me in the eye like, dad, I'm going to do this right now. And so I'm like, no, don't do this. It's going to make you sick. And it's like, he's looking at me going, dad, you're just trying to ruin all my fun. I have one thing I want to do and they're not letting me do it. I want to drink the water out of this hot tub. And I'm going, it will make you sick. It will make you miserable. And he looks at me like I'm a moron. And I look at him like he's a moron because he's two and he is, he's my moron. And I love him to death, but I'm looking at him like you don't know better. But my two-year-old thinks he knows better. And some of you look at God and think you know better. You're like, oh, no, I know better. Like, I know what the scripture says. I know what God has to say, but I know better than you, God. Like, I'm actually smarter than you, God. I know you've laid something down. I know the people of God have always believed this, but I have a feeling deep inside my heart. And so it must be the case. Listen, sin's gonna make you unhappy. This is what it does. Sin is us looking at God and thinking we know better. We know better. We're smarter. We've got this thing on our own. Number three, I want us to know that sin actively works to infect you. Sin actively works to infect you. Can I show you this scripture in 4.7? This is such a powerful verse. If you're gonna memorize two verses tonight, throw this one in as well. 4.7, God says this. He says, sin, he's talking to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Like notice here, sin, it's like an animal. It's like someone invading who is crouching at the door ready to pounce. It says its desire is to have you. Isn't that fascinating that sin and evil actually have desires? But you must rule over it. So here's how you and I tend to think about sin and righteousness, good and bad and right and wrong and good decisions and bad decisions. We tend to think of it like a menu at a restaurant. And so we think like today I'll either have chicken or I'll have steak, I'll have a salad or I'll have French fries. Like we just kind of like, we look at a menu and we choose. And that's how most of us have been trained to think about our choices. So you've grown up in the modern West in the 21st century, where you are told that there is nothing that inhibits your will where you just get to make decisions, you have free will, there's nothing that ever impedes you, you just get to wake up and choose every day what you're going to do. Most of you think of your choices like a menu. That's not how the Bible thinks of your choices. Like the Bible does not imagine that you are just kind of unimpeded by anything in this world. The Bible imagines that evil, right, wrong, good, bad, Satan and his demons, the angels are constantly at war for your soul. Like they're constantly at war for your soul. They're constantly coming after you. They're constantly doing this. Notice this, like, 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 like sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, like sin itself wants to have you. So again, this is the metaphor I'm using tonight. And I'm not, it's not lost on me um, that we're using this metaphor after two years of us talking constantly about a virus. But, but I think this is illustrative. Like, like I think we need to take it with this kind of serious, like, like, like remember this virus wants to get in, Right? Like the virus wants to spread. That's the thing we've been talking about for two years. Like it wants to spread. It wants to spread. When it gets inside of you, it does. And it does not look for your consent. And I just need to tell you someone tonight, 
Sin does not look for your consent. It wants to own you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to take you over. And listen to me. That is why some of us choose sin even when we don't think we want to. Like, have you ever just chosen sin and gone, I don't want to do this. I don't know why I keep doing this. This is why in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, the apostle Paul says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I do not want to do, I do for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Does this resonate with anyone? Like, anyone know what this is like? Anyone in this room know what it's like to say, I never want to look at pornography again, but there you go late at night? Does anyone in this room know what it's like to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and say, we're never going to cross that line again, and yet you do cross that line? Does anyone in this room know what it's like to say, you know what, I'm so sick and tired of getting provoked by my parents. The next time I'm around them, I'm not going to fly off the handle. I'm just going to stay calm. And there you are at dinner again, screaming at your parents. Like, do you know what it's like? Do you know what it's like to say, I'm never going to do this again. And yet there you go doing the very thing you hate. The thing you don't want to do, you do. And the thing you hate, you end up doing. Like, this is what sin is. Sin is not this like option out in this world that sometimes you choose. It is trying to infect you. It is trying to get its hooks in you. It is trying to move on you. And if you have this naive view of sin, that you're just this free will agent who can choose whatever you want, you will never understand the reality of spiritual warfare all around you. But when you do start to understand it, you understand that there is Satan and his demons and evil itself incarnate that is trying to get its hooks in you. And you will also understand that there is a Holy Spirit. And when you are filled with that Holy Spirit, there's no room for that other stuff in you. That's what we need to know, that sin is actively trying to infect us. Number four is this. I want you to know that the sin, the infection of sin is personal, but it's never private. It's personal, but it's never private. Remember, it says Cain takes him out in the field. And while they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Killed him. I need you to know this. Your sin is personal, meaning you're responsible for your sin. Can I tell you some good news? You're not responsible for my sin. You're not responsible for the sin of the person on your left or on your right. You're not responsible for your sibling's sin. Listen, I'm not responsible for my children's sin. It is personal. It is on them. They own that sin. But let's be abundantly clear. Your sin is never private. Your sin is personal, but it is never private, meaning it never just stays inside of you. Again, it is like this virus that wants to spread out of you and onto other people to infect other people and cause damage and pain. And some of you have walked through a story in your life where someone else's sin that they just thought was their own thing ended up leaking out all over you. There was a parent who never got a hold of their anger and their anger turned into abuse and came out all over you. Some of you have walked through a situation where you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend who never got control of that lust issue in their life. And because they never had control of that, their personal sin was not private and ended up wounding you deeply through their unfaithfulness, through their cruelty, through their lust. Like I want us to understand this. Sin is personal, but it's not private. It always impacts people. Like you think gossip is no big deal because everyone does it around you. That is a personal sin you are committing, but it is not private. It destroys friendships and roommate groups and relationships and small groups. It destroys us. Jealousy, we think of this internal emotion that we have, and so whose business is it? But I don't know about you, but I've walked through seasons of my life where I am jealous, and I am a disgustingly, hideously twisted up person when I am jealous. It comes out on other people as a kind of insecurity, as a kind of hurt toward them. Like I just want us to remember that the sin you walk in might be personal, but it is never private. And it will always impact the people around you. And some of you have no interest in walking in holiness, forsaking your sin, hating your sin, and clinging to what is good for your own sake. Can I plead with you to do it for the sake of your friends, for the sake of your future spouse? 
But like, I'm, I, know, I know I'm talking to like the largest single group here at Calvary, right? Like this, this is the room, right? Like single, ready to mingle, let's go, yahoo, right? Like, can, I just, can I just plead with someone here? Um, if you have a besetting sin in your life that you have not conquered through the power of the Spirit, I just wanna plead with you to use the time that you are single to do that before you get married and hitch your wagon and your sin to someone else's soul. Like, like I plead with you not to be naive enough to think I struggle with lust and porn now, but I'll get married and it'll all go away. I struggle with anger now, but I'll get married and everything will be great. I'm a habitual worrier who's constantly anxious and worrying about everything. But once I get married or once I have kids, everything will be perfect in my life. Like slay your sin now so your future spouse doesn't suffer. Slay your sin now so your future children don't suffer. Be the type of person who says, I'm going to deal with this sin because it is personal, but it is never private. And then finally, here's the one I want you to see that the symptom of sin is an inward curve an inward curve. I want you to see the question that the Lord asked to Cain. He says, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And then he asked this question, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? This is this powerful question he asked to God. In other words, God, why are you asking me about my brother? Am I responsible for my brother? I'm responsible for me. I'm into me. I'm about my life. I'm not responsible. I don't know anything about him. I don't know what's going on in him. I want you to understand that this is the result of sin. This is what sin does to us. Sin curves us in. There was this old Latin phrase that the preachers used to use in the ancient world, and they called it this, in curvatas in se, which means a man curved in on himself, a woman curved in on herself. This is sin. Like sin is the type of thing that makes us think about us, worship us, talk about us, be into us. When we are walking in sin, what ultimately happens is our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it is only us. This is what happens. Cain kills Abel and immediately God goes, let's talk about this. Where's your brother Abel? And Cain goes, I can't think about my brother. I'm not his keeper. I'm thinking about me. It curves us in on ourselves. This is what sin does. Sin is the type of thing that curves us in on himself. So, so let me um, give this example. It resonate with some of you uh, who are into this kind of movie story genre and others of you, uh, it will fall completely flat. Illustration wasted. Uh, but I will try my best here. Um, I want to talk to you for a second about a character um, from the epic uh, Lord of the Rings series. Um, and so some of you are like, yeah. And some of you are like, I'm not coming back to this church. Okay, right. All right. So, so, so listen, uh, there is this character and um, I'll put this fella on the screen here. Uh, this is a character named Gollum here. Um, now, yeah, Gollum's this like creepy character. Let me, let me, let me tell you Gollum's story here. Gollum's this like normal fella who's like everything's good in his life. And then at some point in his life, he discovers what's called in the, in, in the books, the ring of power. And this ring of power gives him like unusually long life and it gives him power and this ability. And it's this wonderful, beautiful thing. But then here's what happens to Gollum. It's like this evil, wicked thing that gives him a bunch of power. And he begins to call it something that you hear all throughout the books and the movies. He begins to call it his precious and what happens to Gollum is this, that over time he goes from this like well-adjusted, handsome fella to this individual who is twisted up by his love for this thing, his love for his precious. It's like his ring kind of becomes this thing that his whole life is built around. So here's what happens to Gollum. He becomes incurvatus and say, he becomes curved in on himself. All he wants is this thing that he wants and his whole world becomes about this. He doesn't know how to interact with anyone. He doesn't even know how to do anything. All he can think about is this. All he can think about is this thing in front of him, this wickedness and this evil. Can I say a few things to you? This is a miserable life. This is a miserable kind of life. The kind of life where sin curves you in on yourself and all you think about is you. 
You walk into a room like this on a Thursday night and all you think about is you and how you look and how you feel. You can't even look to other people. You can't even minister to other people because you're so thinking about you. You're insecure about your hair and how you look and how you feel and what's going on. You're just completely wrapped up in you. And I want you to know if this is you, like if you find yourself just constantly thinking about yourself, talking about yourself, curved in on yourself, the answer isn't like some self-esteem coaching or some social awareness, none of that. The answer is to get outside of yourself and the only way you do is to forsake your sin, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. This is a miserable life. Can I say this too? That this is a miserable culture. You ever lived inside of a culture? Maybe you're living inside of one now. Even in your family or in your group of friends or even you just look at American culture where everyone's just curved in on themselves, thinking about themselves, talking about themselves, looking to satisfy themselves and their needs and their wants. This is a miserable kind of culture. And then finally, the thing I want to say, this is a miserable kind of church. Like if our church ever becomes the type of church where you show up here on Thursday nights because you need to get a little bit of God in your cup and you need to, you and God need to do this and you're just constantly thinking about you and how you feel and what's going on with you and you never get outside of yourself to say she needs prayer and he needs some encouragement and it looks like he needs someone to sit with him and that person over there looks new so I'm gonna go talk to them. Like that is a miserable kind of church. May that never be true of us. May we never be the people who are so curved in on ourselves because of our sin that we don't recognize that to be the type of person who hates what is evil and clings what is good is to come out of that inward curve and to see people for who they are, to worship God for who he is, and to notice other people that we're not so self-absorbed. So here's what the, first, uh, the, the book of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 is gonna say. It's gonna reflect on the story of Cain and Abel. John's gonna say this, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one. Okay, there's a statement. Like right at the beginning, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. And then the next generation with Cain, Cain belongs to the evil one. It says, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Like, listen to me. Um, it says here that he belonged to the evil one. Like, in other words, sin was so bought into him, it had gone so unchecked in his life that he actually, in some way, was in bondage to Satan. And that's my fear for anyone in this room. Like, my concern, my burden as a pastor is that you would take your sin so lightly and so casually because our culture says it's no big deal that you would actually start to belong to and be owned to evil forces in this world. I don't want that for you. I don't want you to be the type of person who is owned and destroyed by evil. Evil is out to get you. Like it is crouching at your door. Like someone needs to hear this. Evil is crouching at your door. It desires to own you. You must master it. You must hate what is evil. You must cling to what is good. Let me give you three reasons that we hate what's good or hate what's evil. Cling, hey, hey, it's good. Preaching's hard. One of three, number one, we should hate what's evil inside of us because it dishonors God. It dishonors him. Listen, my, my desire, my, my goal, my aim in life is to be someone who honors God with my whole life. I never want to be the type of person who lives in such a way that I actually don't honor God. And when I am obsessing over my sin, when I am walking in my sin, I am dishonoring God and I am robbing myself of joy. Like I've used this metaphor before, like when I got married in 2013, uh, my wife uh, put this ring on my finger and it was her gift to me. And she even said that in our wedding ceremony, this ring is my sacred gift to you. Uh, and so I want you to imagine that a few years into our marriage, um, I start to get really excited about this ring. And listen, this is a cool ring. It's tungsten carbide. It can't be scratched. I don't know why that's cool, but it is cool. It's kind of, it's my only claim, right? It's a pretty boring ring, but I want you to imagine I start to get really excited about it. And like, every time I go home, I'm like hanging out with the ring and talking to Danny. He's like, can I tell you about my day? I'm like, no, no. Um, <laughs> 
I'm just going to hang out with the ring. And then it's like Friday night. She's like, you want to do date night? You're like, I'm, I'm doing nachos with the ring tonight, right? <laughs> and I start to get really into it. And she's like, this is getting weird. I'm like, no, you're getting weird. Like, I love this ring, right? And then I start to become the golem guy. I'm like, my precious, right? Like, I start to get so into this. Like, what would happen in that moment if I started to be more obsessed with the gift she gave me than the giver of the gift? Two things happen. Well, one is I become miserable, right? If I, if I actually became the guy who was really into my wedding ring, none of you are like, that is the path toward peace, you know? None of you are like, that is the way to thrive in life, right? Like, I would become miserable, but then here's what you need to understand, too. The more I obsess over the gift that she gave me rather than her, that does not honor my wife. It dishonors her. Like, in that moment, my wife is dishonored and I am robbed of joy. If I become more obsessed with the things she gave me than with her, than with actually being in her presence, that's what happens. Listen, that's what sin is. Sin is when you become so obsessed with the creation, so obsessed with yourself, so obsessed with something in this world that you do not honor him. You worship and serve the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Sin dishonors our God. Number two, we should hate what's evil inside of us because it destroys us. It destroys us. Like the McGriddle, right? Like it tastes good in a moment, but it's going like to destroy me over the long haul. It's not good for me. I want you to know that your life will increase in misery if you walk in habitual, unchecked, unrepentant sin. Listen, I am not talking about the person in this room who is making war with their sin and even failing over and over and over again. But to the person in this room who has made peace with their sin, who does not believe it's a big deal and has no intention of turning from it, it will destroy you. And then I just want to be abundantly clear. Like, I just believe there are Christians in this room who will struggle with certain sins until the day they die, and they will be with God in glory and resurrection, and God will take that temptation from your life. Praise the Lord. That day is coming. But then there are some people who love their sins so much that they've actually never turned to Jesus. Like, I want to be clear. Like, salvation comes from us trusting in Jesus, not our behavior, not our lack of sin. But I also want to be clear that sin is what destroys us not only in this life but forever. Like, I can't talk about sin and not tell you that the Bible teaches that there is coming a day where we will all stand in judgment before God. And if you love your sin and you hate Jesus, if you do not forsake your sin and turn from your sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the scriptures do not say everyone will go into heaven. The Bible says that there is a reality called hell and that there will be people who go to it. Like, I just don't want to play games here. I don't want to just say nice things. I know no one likes to talk about hell. I know hell is one of those things that's so easy to ignore. But if we're going to talk about sin, we need to talk about the fact that when we rebel against the holy God and say, forget you, God, I'm going my own way, eventually God will say, you can come back to me or you can keep walking down that road until eternal destruction. Like the Bible teaches that there's a place called hell. And here's what I want you to know. Um, every time I talk about hell, someone just gets upset and like twisted up over it. Like, how dare you talk about hell? I remember this um, time I was preaching about hell actually in a YA service. This was years ago, back in uh, when we were in the high school room. And I preached about hell and this guy comes up after me uh, and he gets real close to me. And you know someone's about to get aggressive when they put your, their finger in your chest. I'm like, okay, like this is, this is getting real here. He goes, are you telling me? Are you telling me? That just because I don't believe in your Jesus, I have to go to hell, I don't get to go to heaven? It was intense. And I responded in two ways. And here's the two ways I hope you'll respond the next time someone gets up in your face about heaven and hell. The first is I said this, I'm not telling you anything Jesus is. Like, like this isn't a me thing. This isn't a me argument. This isn't like something I came up with because I'm trying to stir people up. Like your problem, if you have a problem with hell, is with Jesus. It's not with me. Like I want you to know your job to stand for what the scriptures say and actually articulate and be bold about it isn't to make something up or to have your own opinion. It's to say, this is what Jesus said. If you've got an issue with it, go talk to him. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I didn't say that. He did. But then here's the second thing I said to the guy. I said, listen, um, 
I think you're misunderstanding something here. I think you think heaven's just the nice place you go and hell's the wrong place you go. Here's what I need you to know about heaven. Heaven is all about Jesus. There is a throne in the center of heaven and Jesus, the lamb who was slain before the beginning of the world. Like Jesus is seated on the throne and all of heaven is about Jesus. It's worshiping Jesus and talking about Jesus and looking to Jesus and lifting up Jesus. So why, you who hate Jesus, why would you want anything to do with that for all of eternity? See, see, that's what I want us to know. But like heaven and hell isn't about like, you're a good person, so you go to heaven. You're a bad person, so you go to hell. Heaven and hell is about this. Do you want to spend eternity with Jesus or not? And that's what I want for you. Like, I just want to call you to this. If you don't know Jesus tonight, I don't want you to leave this place before calling on the name of the Lord. Here's what the Bible says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This wasn't even my intention tonight. I'm just going to stand here and invite someone. If you want to know Jesus tonight, you can call on his name today. And in that moment, he forgives your sins. And you're going to struggle and you're going to wrestle for the rest of this life. But hell is real and sin destroys. And I don't want anyone to live with the illusion that your sin's no big It's a massive deal before a holy God. Listen, we should hate the evil in us because it destroys us. And then finally, we should hate the evil inside of us because it damages others. It harms them. It brings pain to others. It brings pain to your parents. For some of you, you have lived in such a way that aches and kills your mother, that aches and kills your aunts and uncles, your grandmother, your best friend, your childhood small group. These people see what you're doing and the way you're living, and it aches, it hurts them. Your, your sin actually has impact on others. Remember, it's personal, but it is never private. Why should we hate what is evil and cling to what is good? Because he, evil dishonors God. It destroys us. And listen, it damages others. Now, here's all I want to close tonight. Our band can make their way up right now. Uh, and we're going to sing, as always, and set our eyes on Jesus again. If sin is me curved in on myself, worship, right living is me getting outside of myself and directing my heart and my attention and my affection toward heaven. But here's what I want you to see at the very end. Again, if sin is the sickness or this virus that makes us sick, I want us to see this in Mark chapter two. Jesus says these words. He says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Listen, I'll say this again. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but to those who are sick. So, so I want you to think about it this way. Um, if sin is this virus that makes us sick, Jesus is this physician who comes to make us whole and make us well and make us right. I was thinking about this because just the other week, I was not feeling so well. It was last Wednesday. I was not feeling well at all. I left work early. I went into urgent care to try to figure out what was going on with me. They ran all these tests. They're trying to figure out, is it COVID? Is it this? Is it an infection? Is it something else? They're running all these tests. This doctor's coming in and out of the room and he's like examining me and running tests on me and he's asking questions of me and he's trying to figure out what's wrong with me so he can get me the right kind of medication to get me better. And of all the different things this doctor did, I can tell you the one thing he did not do to me when I came into the doctor's office sick was get angry at me for coming in. Like, like the one thing he did not do was be like, why are you in my office? Stop wasting my time. I don't have any point of you being here. Get out of here. Like he didn't do that, right? Because that's what doctors are there for. The whole point of the doctor is that they're supposed to help you get healthy. For you to come into a doctor and be sick is not some out of the ordinary thing you should be ashamed of. It's the exact right thing to do. Can I tell you, some of you have this vision of Jesus in your mind where he's angry when you drag your sin to him. So you think you drag your pornography use or, or your anger or your hate or your greed or your envy or your jealousy and you drag it before him and some of you think Jesus is mad at you for it. And can I free someone tonight to know that Jesus is not mad when you drag those things? He says, I'm the physician. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. So if there's any sinners in the room tonight, I want you to know that Jesus came for you. The whole point of Jesus coming was that you would come to him and drag your sinfulness and your wickedness, the things that draw you away, the things that twist up your life. Jesus doesn't want them. I want you to come before me. 
So listen, I just want you to hear me tonight. Like if you're in this room and I've been talking about sin and you just feel like this crushing shame and guilt tonight, I want you to worship tonight as if Jesus says, bring it to me. That's how I want you to worship. Jesus is mad that you're coming before him. He's not angry at you. He's not looking down on you going, you fool, what's wrong with you? How could you possibly walk in that kind of sin? He goes, I see the sickness that's inside of you and I wanna make you well. That's what Jesus does. It's just to anyone tonight who's just struggling in their sin, feels like they're so far from God, feels like Jesus would never want anything to do with you. Can I just read again the words of our Savior? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Like to the perfect person in this room who's never sinned, you got everything together, you're good, you can leave before worship starts. But to those who are sick, he says, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And church, we are a church filled with sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, who have been twisted up with all sorts of things. And I want you to know that your Savior is not mad at you. Your Savior invites you tonight to sing, to worship, to cry out to him, to drag all of your sinful, wicked, twisted up ways before him and say, would you make me whole? So let me pray for you tonight. And then we're gonna sing. Father in heaven, I just wanna pray for this room tonight. God, I just know I stirred stuff up tonight. I know that your Holy Spirit is convicting and that some people are sitting under a kind of shame and guilt that has no place in their life. God, I pray against the enemy. I pray against lies that the enemy would tell, that no one's good enough, that they'd never be accepted or forgiven by God. I just pray the enemy has no foothold in this place. I pray on the authority of the resurrected Jesus that he is expelled from this room tonight. And God, I pray for anyone tonight who just feels so twisted up, so shame, uh, so stuck in their sin. God, I pray that you, the great physician, would come make them whole tonight. As we sing, God, would it not just be singing more songs, but it would be us just worshiping you, getting out of ourselves, getting out of the curved in on ourselves types posture to worship and to praise you. God, I just pray you would set the captives free tonight. You are the great physician. And I thank you for healing and saving sinners like me. God, would you receive our worship and praise? We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.